you're you're my uh, you're my writing hero, uh, and uh, I can't believe that. Let me just quickly for for my viewers, I will put a better inset. But this stunning book I've just started to read. Um, uh, well, I wish I'd read it ages ago. But what a, how beautifully written it is, everybody. So, you know, if anybody's um, uh, uh, needing a place to go in their next journey to understand Katyn, this is the place to go. And everybody in the world must read this <laughs> as a matter of urgency, frankly. Uh, I can't believe how beautiful the book is. So Jane, what I thought I would do is to ask you a just a few general questions about uh, your writing and about Katyn. Um, but then if you don't mind, what I'd like to go, I've got six places in the book, which I'd like to go to and just ask you some things to unpack it a little bit more and so on. Yeah, that'd be fun. Yes, I'd like that. Okay. okay. Yeah. Great. Okay, well, so let's begin with a really obvious one. <laughs> what drew you to Captain? Oh, God. Madness, probably. Um, uh, I think it goes back to 2010 and there was the Smolensk air crash when some of your listeners may or may not know when a plane full of Polish dignitaries on its way to commemorate the 70th anniversary of Katyn crashed in circumstances which were horribly sort of echoing of the original deed and from brief moments Katyn was in the British press and I think at the time I just realized that none of my friends had ever heard of it and that sort of got me thinking um, and it took quite a long time before that came to fruition in any meaningful way. But I think that sort of started me off. And then I, I became, when I, when I decided I wanted to write about it, I, I very quickly knew that I wanted to write about it in a different way than I had seen it written about particularly recently. So there's a kind of division between sort of before the end of communism and after the end of communism. So prior to the end of communism, when it was still, you know, the fake idea that it was a, a Nazi crime was still being perpetrated, uh, sort of promulgated. Um, I think it was still, people were still aware of it in the West up to a certain point, up until the 1970s or 80s. And most things that were written about it uh, tend to be written from from sort of exile perspective and a lot of the investigation came from that perspective. After 1990, there was this massive outpouring of scholarship and writing about it in Poland and zero in the West. And so partly I wanted to bring it up to date, but also I felt that one of the issues with Katyn from a Polish perspective, as someone who's kind of partially an outsider, I'm half Polish, you know, you're sort of half in and half out of that perspective, is that it's such an emotive issue in Poland for very obvious reasons, because the truth was suppressed for so long, that it, it's quite difficult to write about it in a sort of balanced way. And I, I found a lot of the, particularly in a way, the further it gets from the event, the more emotive the writing becomes and the more that the prisoners themselves become these kind of victims and martyrs without faces. And, and I was very inspired by the contemporary memoirs of people like Józef Czapski, Mm. Bronisław Minarski, who survived the massacre and wrote with such incredible sort of compassion and humanity and, and illumination. 
And so I, you know, I suppose my writing tends to be about framing large, often quite traumatic historic events through the lens of ordinary people and, and trying to imagine what it feels like to be in that situation. Um, and as you've pointed out, I ended up writing not one book about it, but two, which is an act of supreme folly. <laughs> well, thank goodness you did. Thank goodness you did. Um, can you, do you want to, uh, may you explain a little bit about your own Polish background? You say you're half Polish. What's what, uh, so care to share dad, the story? Sure. My dad was Polish. My mum was British. Um, they're both dead now. But he came over in the war, at the beginning of the war as a child. Um, so his father was a sort of minor member of the Polish government. He was an economist. He worked for the Bank of Poland. And so they got out right at the very beginning of the war on the government train that was carrying the gold. It's a very exciting story for my childhood. Um, and they came out via Romania, and then they went to France. And then when France fell, they ended up in the UK. So he spent, you know, almost all his life in Britain. So we were not brought up in a particularly Polish household. Um, yeah. What was the question? You've answered it. <laughs> the Polish connection you're, yeah, you're, yeah. yourself. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's, so, um, so next question would be this then. As a, so I'm, I'm Polish citizen, my mother was Polish also, and I have, and, and um, how do we, you say in, in um, surviving Katyn, and I'm, I'm afraid I'm only up the, uh, to the first 50 pages or so, but it's, but you have a, you have a, a, a section on why Katyn, not a section, but you write about why it's important to remember Katyn, and that's partly why I'm doing this play, because I want to keep this. So what, what, can you share a little for, for my, I have Polish people in, well, in my uh, viewership and, and also English people. So how would you explain to UK people first why we should continue to remember Katyn? Well, it's a very apt question, isn't it? Considering the brutality of the 20th century and, and the number of, you know, you, you, you're horribly spoilt for choice when it comes to mayhem and murder and brutality. Um, and I think Katyn's worth remembering for two reasons, uh, partially because even amidst the kind of Stalinist brutality, it's very unusual that he chose to dispatch murder such a large number of foreign citizens mm -hmm. on Soviet mm -hmm. soil. It was actually a big, mm -hmm. you know, quite a big step to do that. And, and, and the subsequent cover-up had to be so elaborate as a consequence because you couldn't control the narrative as easily as you could when Soviet citizens were in, involved. You know, and it's worth pointing out that in April 1943, when the German army announced that they had discovered mass graves in the Katyn Forest, which were the graves of one of the three prison camps, the Kozhels camp, that at the same time, they also announced that they had discovered a mass grave in Venezia in Ukraine um, of thousands of bodies, which was part of the, the terror, you know, Stalin's terror. And that's, mm, you know, mm. to a Western audience, that's maybe less well known because, of course, mm. you know, the fact that Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union, was it was easier for them to cover up those kind of things. Um, mm. But the, the other reason why I think it's important uh, why Katyn is important is because of the nature of the sort of, if you like, the narrative that followed the, the events. So 
it's unusual even in, in, in sort of Soviet terms in, in the sort of spectacular length and depth of the kind of construction of the lie around it. So, yes. so the fact that, you know, when, when, when the massacre first happened, they, that the NKVD took such extreme caution to ensure that, you know, not only was it kept secret, but that, you know, the, the, the prisoners left willingly and joyfully thinking they were being sent home and, oh, and the oh. small number of survivors you know thought that they were the unlucky ones who'd been left behind yes. um and 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 you know the 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 the, the, the fact that the, uh, the, the 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 secrecy of that could have been maintained uh indefinitely had it not been for the fact that the germans discovered that mass grave and when they discovered that mass grave, it put everything in an international light of publicity, which forced the NKVD and subsequently the KGB to, to pursue, I mean, to pursue an alternative fake narrative with such dedication and, and such, you know, methods that sadly are incredibly familiar even today. Um, in, you know, when you look at Putin's Russia and the, the methods that have been used over the recent years to obscure stories or you know uh, create fake narratives and i think that makes it very important because i think it shows mm. us a lot about the methodology of the nkvd and there's a direct lineage from the nkvd down to the kgb down to the fsb about you know how, how you construct false stories how you deny how you suppress mm. witnesses mm. how you pursue mm. things how I mean, it's you know, from an intellectual point of view, it's fascinating. It's completely fascinating. From an emotional point of view, it, it's it's horrible. And I suppose, in in a way, that's what I mean about the difficulty of distance. That that I think, you know, within Poland, it's it, it's such an emotive subject. It's very difficult to look at it and go, "Hmm, that's intellectually interesting," because yes. you know, because yes. <laughs> you're thinking about how horrible it is. One of if my that makes sense. Are... Does that make yes, sense? It... It really does. It really does. And uh, um, one of my actors last night, one of my beautiful actors, I may say, because they will all tune into this, obviously, when I, when I put it out. They're all beautiful. Well, yes, they better. They better. I tell you what. Because, mm. um, uh, and um, and uh, she said, she said, uh, we were just chatting before the start of the rehearsal and she said, it's all happening again. It's mm. all happening again, you know, in Ukraine and so on. And, uh, this well, is, I, this I have is, to... I have to say that I found myself thinking last year that, you know, I wrote this book on the understanding that these events were in the past. And then when the war happened in, in Ukraine, when they invaded Ukraine, I sort of thought about this book and I thought, I'm not sure I could write it now. Wow. I really don't think I could because I think it's too, it is too close to the kind of horror of what's going on in, in real people's lives. You know, and I try to recreate these things. But, but there's a certain distance that you have thinking that you're writing about history, however painful it is. Mm. And then when you, you think about people who are experiencing things now, right now, it, it, it actually doesn't bear thinking about. And yet it must be thought about, mustn't it? You know, and uh, oh, well, let's go. Let's let's come. Let's come to the book then. I'm so excited. Let me see if I can do think great. Are we, are, we, can I, are we being, I mean, is this going out as we talk or are you going to edit it? No, no, no. I'm going to edit it and then, like I said, okay. I'll send it. In which you. case, could you just hold on one sec? Because my front door's going. I need to mm. just yell to my son to make him open the door. Of course. How? Can you get that? Thank you.
Sorry. No, actually, uh, people really love things like that. It, it, uh, they love what they love the humanity of it. Or if I suddenly burst into flames or something. Open the um, door. Yes. <laughs> yes. Right. Okay. Let me not waste any of your time. No, so that's fine. I mean, it's just stunning to me. First of all, it's just stunning to me how I'm not going to be able to avoid some spoilers. I'm just not. Um, so let me try and not avoid them, but still preserve the intrigue. So, for example, I was stunned when I got, from a writing perspective, I was stunned when I, because all the way through, I was thinking, I've got to, and I want to come to one of the characters who I know you didn't invent. Um, in a moment, that's going to be my first dive into the book. But uh, I was stunned. Am I right that most of the characters, including Kozhovsky, you are from you are composites from your imagination? No, a lot of them are very closely based on real people. Kozłowski himself, so I took a kind of line that uh, I had to respect the, the you know historical fact. And any character that retained their real name had to, you know, I wasn't going to really make up yes. stories about them. I would put dialogue in their mouths. I might, there's what, Tomasz, the Henczynski, I, yes. I, I did play a little free, fast and loose oh. with, with him. Um, I love him so much. Um, I know. Um, and then Kozłowski was based on a, a real, he, the, the doctor. So he was the kind of key to, uh, to how to write the book, actually. And I found a, an unpublished account of his time in Starobiosk, this real doctor. Oh. And um, it sort of provided enough detail to, but, he, but because he wasn't well known like Chapsky or Munarski, you know, because he wasn't someone who I felt I'd be messing with, I thought I'll take some elements of his real life and then I'm going to embroider it to create this fictional character. Right. So right. A, large, a large number. So I, I sort of built up the characters through, through reading lots of different accounts reading the NKVD accounts, which provide a kind of mirror image of some mm -hmm. of the events that you get in the, um, in the Polish accounts, where you find the same things where they try to celebrate November the 11th or something, and you hear the Polish, mm. you know, this is what they tried mm. to do, and then you hear the mm. NKVD report about what the prisoners tried to do, and it allows you mm. to kind of cross-check things, and it, I mean, I find that kind of thing rather fascinating, but... Um, yeah. I mean, I should and, probably... And the yeah. No, the, other, the other doctor, uh, whose name I, I can't... I won't Levitum. Be able to yes, he's... Uh, well, so he was real. He was he? real. Yeah. Um, amazing man. Yes. I mean, there were so many, especially Starobiosk. I, I, you know, more has been written about Kozhowsk than Starobiosk. And yet I found so many really fascinating accounts of Starobelsk. And actually it's a long time since I've spoken about these kind of minutiae of it. Most people ask me about the bigger political story, but but actually it was the characters that just completely obsessed yes. for so long. Yes. Because, because I just felt I wanted them to live again. You know, I felt, yes. I felt that one of the sad things about Katyn and, and with time, I suppose that's what I meant when I said earlier that 
that there is this sort of tendency that they become these kind of faceless martyrs who can't have any faults because they're victims. And I felt that what was so delightful about them was that they were fully fledged human beings and they were pompous and they argued and they, you know, and they had senses of humor and and just, I I cannot tell you how much time I spent in my mind in their world. (laughs) It must have been, I can't imagine the, degree to which you had you was you must have been so cautious when you were writing about for instance things like that the way in which the personalities got on or didn't get on or were vying with each other or even bickering with each other in the in the camp how cautious you must have been about about getting into that imaginative world Oh, it was hard. It was really hard work. And I and I, I should say that probably the fact that I've written two books is in some ways an admission of failure, because what I set out to do originally was I really wanted to write a sort of narrative nonfiction book that would, you know, that you could read as if you were reading a novel, but that would be nonfiction. And, and I I couldn't. Yeah. This, this one. Well, that, that everybody up. read it. That's the main. That it, it, it does read. I mean, it's beautiful to read. It does read novelistically almost in the bits I've read. You just, well, I say, you can't put it down. So why, why, why have I not finished it? But I only started it yesterday. So it's quite heavy going. I mean, it's it's a much no, it's not. It's, at a, all. it's a serious it's work of, of histories in in a way. So yes. I mean, the the novel allowed me to explore lo- lots of different things, and it allowed me to take the perspective, yes, of one man, and so. But at the end of it, having, <laughs> I love that cover, at the end of it, having taken yes. the perspective of one man, I, I had all the rest of the story that I hadn't been able to tell that would take you outside of that perspective. And mm. um, and when uh, I, I pitched another project to my agent and he said, no, I'm not really interested in that, but I would quite like a book about, a nonfiction book about Catin. And I, I went, oh, <laughs> I'm your person. I can do this. I've done so much research. And of course, it was it was a massive amount of mm. extra research, uh, mm. huge, huge. I mean, I've, I've lived with this subject for quite some time now, but um, but yeah, so creating the characters is a really, really important part and trying to fictionalize. So actually, when I wrote yes. this, the bit that was hardest to write as fiction was the camp. So in yeah, a way, yeah. the, the further I got away from documented experience, the freer yes. I felt to invent. Oh, so when we're in London and, you know, those bits, I, I was much freer. And actually, I found a lot of pleasure, uh, which I hadn't really expected about bringing aspects of things that I knew from my own upbringing that came into it. Um, and, you know, West London, I was brought up in West London. So the fact that they're all in South Kensington and Earl's Court. and uh, yeah, right. But I really enjoyed writing that because that's where I'm from, Chiswick, Hammersmith. I was, right, right. You know, and my father used to talk about these kind of cafes and places that they're still there, many of them right. now. Right. Um, whereas the camp was really hard because I sort of felt like I had to be respectful, but at the same time, you, yes. have, you have to move away from, yes. doc, you, I'm sure yes. you know this with what you're doing, that you, you, can't be, you can't be sort of weighed down by being too respectful because then you just make bad art. Oh, I'm so <laughs> glad to hear you say that. <laughs> It, uh, anyway, I won't talk about me. I'll talk about. So now into the book we go. Yeah. Um, 
uh, what I thought I would do is to go to is to go to how many have I got here? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. We won't get through all seven, I'm sure, but seven places I cried. Oh, <laughs> bit, but, bless uh, you. <laughs> well, seven. I should say seven of the places I cried. And, and uh, I'm picturing you sitting reading this with tears pouring out. There are cheerful bits. Well, he, well, there are, there, and there are very funny bits too. But but uh, necessarily. Because you have you do have this beautiful balance between the the, the awful tragedy of it and because it's very easy, I suspect, to to well blah blah. Anyway, right. So the first bit is I just had to. Uh, my partner is Polish, and um, I, and uh, uh, she must be fed up with this because every so often I would read a bit like this bit and say, oh, "You you must hear this." You must. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, if, if for no other reason that I couldn't pronounce the names, and of course she can. Um, but there's this stunning piece in the Kensington Hotel where, and I love what you do with time, by the way, you know, it's just sort of you, one minute you're here and then, and then suddenly, and I thought, and then when we get into the camp, I, th I thought, well, let's go, that's, that's it now, we're going to settle in the camp. But, but oh, no, we don't. Oh, no, we don't. And those final sequences, which are just beautiful and absolutely universal it seems in my in my perspective as much to do with age as to do with anything well, else you know it's funny a lot of it was written around the time when was I writing it so my father died in 2012 so I was I was writing it just a few years after that and so there were a lot you know a lot of experiences of care homes and hospitals that that were very fresh in my mind at that time Ah, and about I, oh, yeah. I get it I mean I can't be too one of my pieces is obvious there were about six places I blubbed up at the end so <laughs> but I've just chosen one so tell us a little bit about this piece in um um where Kozlowski looks through the heat turns again to look through the pane of glass so that's Stanislav God, thank you so much the economist who is the last man to see his fellow prisoners from Kozhelsk alive. And he gives his evidence, as you say in the uh, paragraph before that, he wears a, oh, I'm not sure I can do it. He wears a large paper bag over his head with holes in it for his eyes and mouth. He gesticulates animatedly, the brown bag moving from side to side as he addresses his audience. And then you, and then you you say uh, at the bottom of the, or, you know, the, the character asks as we, because obviously asks as, as I was asking, why has he got the bag on his head? Oh, tell us about that uh, detail and what then the significance of, of this, of that moment. Well, uh, you will you will find in the surviving Katyn book, you will find a whole chapter about Svyanyevich's escape from Russia, <sighs> which is a story in itself. And obviously not one that could be told in the novel because it was not part of the character's perspective but it's an extraordinary story and i mean if you know you're into drama it's it's one of the most dramatic and fascinating of the whole thing so when he was in kozhelsk camp he so he came from what's now called vilnius Vilno, and he was yes he was sort of politically, from my family from yeah right so he was politically active before the war um, and um, as an economist and someone who had written about the Soviet economy and about the German economy before the war, 
he when he went into Koshal's camp, he was worried about being identified. So he gave a false name initially. And it was, wasn't until sort of February or March 1940 that uh, somebody let slip by accident and his real name was revealed to the camp commandant. And he was brought in for interrogation. And then when they were all taken off on a transport and he was with a group of, you know, however many, I can't remember, 100 or so fellow prisoners, uh, he went with them as far as the siding in the forest where the train stopped. And then suddenly someone turned up with a, he noticed that all the files that were being handed over were one color and his was a different color. Mm. And someone came and ordered that he be taken aside and he was pulled off the train. And so he saw his fellow prisoners. So this was the kind of last moment of their journey. Obviously he didn't know that. He was taken off and he was taken off first to an NKVD prison in Smolensk, where he was the only prisoner there. And he was quite well looked after, but it was all very mysterious. And then he was taken to Moscow, to the Lubyanka, and he was interrogated um, and accused of being a spy. Um, and basically what he realized after a while is that the Soviets were interested in what he had written about the German economy before the war. Mm. Um, and I mean, the long and short of it was he got sent to a gulag, basically. So he got sent to a gulag where he had the most horrendous time, nearly died, uh, was saved thanks to the kindness of several fellow uh, prisoners, including the guy that looked after the mortuary, the sort of the kind of mortuary that they had there um, in the camp, who told him uh, so he, that this guy used to. Um, allow prisoners who were getting very, very weak and close to death to come and lie down in the mortuary underneath the, the bodies because it was it was warmer there or something. I can't even remember now, it was warmer there. Anyway, he survived. And when the tide of the war changed, when the Nazis invaded the Soviet Union in 1941, and you ended up with Poland becoming indirectly allied to the Soviet Union and the Polish army was allowed to form on Soviet soil and all those Polish deportees were, were liberated. Mm. Theoretically, anyone who was in a camp should have been liberated at that time. And one of the main um, focuses of the Polish ambassador Stanisław Kot, who was criticized for many, many things, he was not the most effective ambassador to the Soviet Union, but one of the things he really, really worked hard at was to try to free the, the hundreds of intellectuals and scientists who had been deported to the Soviet Union and to get them out. And Svyanievich had been specifically requested, you know, they knew where he was and they knew they had to get him out. Um, and anyway, it's a very long and very dramatic and amazing story. But, you know, the fact was that um, as, as long as he was in the Gulag, nobody in the NKVD was really worried about what he might have seen or what he might not have seen. But as soon as he was free, he became a threat. Um, and so he very nearly wasn't allowed to leave uh, Russia. I mean, his, his story of escaping from the Soviet Union is, I mean, heart-stoppingly dramatic, <laughs> involving a last-minute drive through a town and running onto a, onto a boat, and finally he gets there, and then the boat gets stopped on the way, and it's just all these inexplicable power cuts, and that was an extraordinary story. Um, and even when he was in exile in the West, he still would occasionally sort of have odd, like, attempted sort of accidents and things that would happen to him. 
Um, so he gave evidence and, you know, anonymously, as, as quite a few people did, because they were, they, he had family still in Poland. And so anyone who still had family in Poland giving evidence yes. at the Madden Committee inquiry had to take precautions to make sure that they were not. Sorry, that was a really long answer. No, no, it's beautiful. Very exciting I, story. I, I... I looked him up a little bit on wiki, I'm afraid to say, but that's as far as it got, but I will pursue that story more. But the bag on the head, Jane, I mean, that's, you know, that's an incomprehensible image. number, isn't it? Yeah. Isn't it? I mean, that sort of, to me, it, it summed up so much of the post-truth thing that, we, that, that you talked about earlier, you know, how do I tell the truth? I can only tell the truth with a flipping bag on my head. Mm. Otherwise, myself and my family are at massive, massive risk. How humiliating that a human being who's been through so much himself could only do, could only be protected. I mean, you can't, I couldn't imagine what it must have been like. The moments where somebody said to him, look, here's a bag. There are some holes in it. Do you want to pop it on? <laughs> I mean, really? Well, I mean, that's probably the least of the things he was worried about. I mean, he didn't see when I was uh, um, preparing the other book, um, one of the photographs that we used, a photograph of him, we, we got it directly from his daughter, who is no. still alive in Poland, or she was a couple uh -huh. of years ago, uh, in her 90s, um, late 80s and 90s, you know, and... Um, she hardly saw him, you know, she was brought up in Poland. She, she hardly knew him because of the, you know, the, the fate. Oh, awful, awful, awful. But, but, but let's, let's hasten on to the next one, which is, God, so many, I could lit, almost literally open the book at any, at any point. It's a very gratifying. Oh my God, it, it, it's stunningly written, stunningly written. And the balance, how, one of the reasons I'm such a fan of your writing is, as with any great writer, or you know, somebody who's by, who tries to do a bit of writing themselves, you look at it and think, I read it and think, how are you pulling this off? This balance between almost a sort of lyrical style you have and the sort of the beauty of the prose becomes almost poetic at times, even in the prison. Then there's this piece. Uh, I, this is another piece I read out to Magda, my, my my partner, and I said, God, can you imagine? Can you imagine the news? The news broadcast, the news bulletin, we're in the camp now, the news bulletins broadcast every hour consist of generally of long enumerations. This is the, this is you're, you're writing about what the prisoners had to endure listening to the propaganda from the Russians about the German victories. I mean, it's inconceivable how history can be so ridiculously, you know, backwards. They wait impatiently for these signals from the outside world, setting up a rotor to ensure that no bulletin is missed. And during the last week of November, it's fallen to Chapsky to cover the late evening shift. Every night, standing huddled in the freezing cold, he listens to reports on events on the Western Front, of which there are few, noting down any information which could be construed as news, ignoring, ignoring the long reports, this is the bit, from liberated Polish territory, where it is said that rich Poles drink the blood of their impoverished people and starve them to death. That's true. I mean, that's that that was the kind of thing that was said. You know, it was very, very brutal propaganda, very crude propaganda. I think you no. just frozen. 
You are frozen, but let us carry. Can you hear me at all? So are you? I can hear you're also frozen. Ah, it'll be an internet wobble. I can oh. hear you. I can hear you. So carry, carry I can on. Hear you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, catch, it'll catch up. Yeah, hopefully. So yes, t tell us about tell us about uh, you know this how what, what how how what 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 lengths did the Soviet captors go to to misinform the prisoners? Well, the propaganda was you know that was being blasted all over the Soviet Union. You know, the, 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 you didn't get a choice of radio station, did you? So um, um, that, that was just sort of par for the course. But, you know, in, in the NKVD documents, you find, you know, orders for um, uh, the number of loudspeakers that they want and where they're going to put them around the camp. And then the, you know, the hours of the day that they're going to blast this stuff at them. And it, so it was a very conscious uh, method of making sure that it was sort of you know in their ears from dawn till dusk and longer uh, they also they gave them papers to read newspapers to read obviously you know communist uh, ones they um they showed them films um i i included a, an entire list of the, the films that they were shown mm -hmm. in in surviving Katyn, and i had it written all down in in Russian. And then when I did the audiobook, I realized I had to read it all out loud. Man, which right. Challenged my <laughs> Russian, not non-existent Russian. Um, yeah. So, you know, it was it's pretty thorough. Incredible. And yet they well, they they resisted, but to the, the rich Poles drink the blood of their and presumably this is you know, my, my mother was deported, as you know, and uh, as I said to you, and uh, and um, so she would have been, it would have been her and people like her who were referred to as the rich Poles. And of course, she was the, the daughter of a teacher, which is what my grandfather was. Um, and then uh, the, there's this, there's this st piece of, I'm talking about the tr truth and so on, and coming back to the propaganda. A little later on, you write about... Um, this day marks a profound shift in perception among those men who have received letters because the letters from home mm. are and you and you oh, this is one of the pieces where I thought you must have had access because they're, they're the diet I've seen that read a book in which there are these diaries that were discovered at, at, at a cutting yeah 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 utterly heartbreaking of course mm. utterly heartbreaking mm. but these letters are absolutely it seems to you could have written the entire novel as a kind of one letter after another received, but presumably they didn't at home. They must not have had any communication from the prison at all, from the camps. No, so so they were only allowed to receive correspondence from November. So they were captured in September 1939. And then from November, they were allowed to receive correspondence. And then, and then they were allowed to send one card a month after that. Uh, and I think the address that was given was, uh, I remember that the Kozhask one was something, it was called something at like the Gorky Rest Home, um, oh which, God. which I think caused, caused a sort of domestic incident in one case where I think a wife wrote to her husband, you know, there you are in some rest home having a nice time. <laughs> we're all suffering. Um, but uh Yes, I mean, news from the outside world was was like you know water to a to a thirsty man. It was the it was the most mm. precious thing. 
Mm. Mm. And that's what, and you write then the, the paragraph on the on the facing page. Those without letters try to make the best of it, smiling politely as others pour out their relief to anyone who will listen. Biawi, ignorant of the fate of his pregnant wife and young child in Vilno, ventures to observe that many of those with family in the Soviet zone of occupation have another list today and expresses the conviction that their turn will soon come. That, you know, this, this dependency upon it, the vital lifeblood of, 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 you know, letters being the communication that keeps you alive, just astonishing. And then, the, and there is this sense of, of certainly in the, some of these characters. And then you talk about Tomasz, and he he's there as a well on that page. Tomasz, has, and you just write so beautifully and so painfully, a single paragraph. Tomasz has heard nothing from his family in Lvov. Hoffman has no news of his family in Warsaw. And that's that's it. That's all, all they get. Tomasz, he's such a... I, I, it's one of the he's one of those characters, one of the many characters where so I knew that with the three, four, nine, and I knew obviously Kozhowski was going to survive. But you kept I kept reading it thinking, I know this is terrible. Please survive. Please <laughs> please be one of the three four nine. Please be one of the three four nine. Well, I don't want to be too too many spoilers, but and 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 also Ransky appears in this in this sequence too, and then he appears much later on too in that. He's a wonderful cat, and again, he was a real. You know, most most of them, sadly, are you know very close. Tomas is is really the only one who who has a name of someone that you know is a victim, who I did really take a lot of liberties with to make him into a fully fledged characters. Whereas people like Garalski or Biao, whatever uh, Hoffman, I made up Hoffman, but um, and I think maybe that was one of the frustrations having written the novel of thinking, well, actually, I wanted to write something where I could say, this is true, you know, mm. because the deal that you get when you write fiction that's based on historical fact is great. You know, you get to play with things, you get to invent things, you get to go inside people's heads and write it however you like, that's fantastic. But you also give up the right to say, this actually happened because you're writing a novel. Yeah. So it has yes. to stand as a, it has to stand as a as a work of fiction, and so you can't keep pointing at it and saying, "Oh, closely based on fact," or yes. "I did a lot of research." Even if yes. you did, that's not the point yes. of it. And I've had this, you know, this is a debate I've had with myself and with other people about the the sort of ethics of writing fiction that's based on fact. And, and probably because I come from a filmmaking background and, you know, you'd know in, in, as a drama, making drama, you know, the process of dramatization is, is a kind of in-between sort of place where yeah, yeah. you're allowed to sort of dramatize factual material without it being quite considered fiction. Um, and I had to make more steps than I think I initially thought I would to make it into a proper novel. Um, that, that was a work of fiction, but 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 I think surviving Catin for me is the is the book that allows me to say, this is evidence, this is facts, these are things that all you know, and even if so many things in the novel are very closely based, you know, maybe one day some poor benighted PhD student can do a comparison of the two. <laughs> <laughs> and then and the next piece I want to go to is, yeah, maybe I mean the two of them. I mean, the thing, the thing is, even the fact of Katyn and the facts of any, you know, massacre of, 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 of 
committed by a state or even an individual upon somebody else are so stupendously ridiculous in many ways that um, the separation between fact and fiction almost makes no no sense because you can't believe anything. You can't believe these things happened, and yet they did. A flood of information. You write this. This uh, your style is just so. Uh, it must have been so hard to keep this, um, to keep your anger. What comes across is is anger, but it must have been so hard to keep your anger um, at bay. And yet you do in this. And there's this. Oh, no, I could choose anywhere, but on on this piece here, I want to come onto the letter in a minute. This letter from Hanka. Did you write this letter from Hanka? Is that, is that oh right? yeah, that's all invented. Oh, Hanka's completely. Is it? Lincoln, mm. it is just incredible. The reason I'm writing, as I'm sure you will guess, con concerns Tomash. I recently received a death certificate for him, dated April 1940, with his place of death given as Kharkov, Ukraine. Um, I believe they're returning to Katyn too after the commission, etc. Perhaps we will meet there with all my best wishes to you and your family. Oh my God, my God. And then in the paragraph before then, this stunning description of the, the, uh, of the importance of history and our, going back to our very first uh, uh, words, as uh, a flood of information, newspaper articles, television programs, etc., follows hot foot on the official revelations. As the boot that has held down a nation's memories. If, I'm just paying tribute to your writing, if I'm an AJ. As the boot that has held down a nation's memories is finally lifted. That's just beautiful. The history of the Second World War is suddenly made fresh and terrible events that happened many years ago resurfaced with a violence that nobody in the West can hope to comprehend. And then this, the skeletons of Western Europe are clean-picked and sanitized. You can look upon them squarely and they will no longer give you nightmares. The unfinished business of the war in the East now rises, rears up from the grave, the rotting flesh still hanging from the bodies of the dead. That should be engraved in marble throughout Europe. <laughs> if I, I'm sorry to be You could tell I'm a fan, Jane. Thank you. Uh, really. Uh, 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 uh. How do you, let me ask a really, let me ask a really, uh, kind of dull question how do you how do you feel when you write something like that do you feel that's it that that that, that does it for me what's it what is it I, uh, is it is that what, what does it feel like it's a funny it's a funny thing the whole writing process isn't it because i i teach writing sometimes and i i become really conscious of the fact that some of my colleagues you know, seem to have a much better grasp on the actual nuts and bolts of how you explain writing to other people as a as a structural process then and I sort of think oh oh yeah I think that's what I do but you know I don't do it consciously I, I think there's very much um when you're writing you there's a sort of place that you get to where there's a kind of flow and it, it feels as if you're uncovering something that was there already and uh -huh. it just feels right so there's a kind of sense of I, I particularly there's a sense of rhythm in, in sentences and words where you just, it feels right. Um, mm. But having said that, you know, the, the editorial process for me involves, I mean, endless rewriting and, and taking stuff out. So I try to achieve economy uh, in whether I'm writing nonfiction or not, 
I try to achieve economy and but but you know my first draft will look like a horrendous repetitive baggy old load mm. of rubbish and and you you have to you know experience tells you not to give up yet you know mm -hmm. your your first I say this to young writers a lot you know that you when you write a first draft you you're so often your first instinct is to throw it away because it's so ugly and mm. ghastly and actually it's you just need to have something to work with and and then mm. you know it, it is a bit like sculpting sometimes you feel that you know when you look at a, a an amazing sculpture particularly in stone you feel that the sculpt the sculptor has revealed something that was in the rock that mm. already was there when you look at michelangelo mm. where you know when uh -huh. the yes. stone mm. kind of emerges and it feels mm. like that sometimes with language that that sentences sometimes pop out that just feel right you know it's yes. just not a particularly conscious process yes. and trying to somehow contact because because the sort of hyperbolic nature of the violence itself is so appalling how do you i mean how do you i suppose one of the ways in which you've done it is get into the camp and meet the ordinary people who have come from such well they haven't come from entirely diverse backgrounds but there is this episode, I can't find it now, where you write about the separation of, uh, and they wait, and the officers, am I right? They kind of wave goodbye to the non officers. Yeah. The kind of, yeah. and they, the and it's kind of, yeah. Yeah. There's a moment where, um, I don't know how you wrote it without breaking down, where it's, it's like a sort of selection process, like a sort of, you know, uh, Auschwitz ramp moment but where I think, people I think are left, really... but right. Yeah, but I think this is this is part of my point. It's a really important thing to remember. So, so I, I in both the books actually, I try to write very much from the perspective of being in the story as it happens. So, so that the characters that you're portraying, whether you're portraying them fictionally or or, or, or as as a work of history, it's about looking from their perspective in that moment in time without the benefit. Mm -hmm of future knowledge and i think one mm -hmm. of the things i think this is what i meant when when people write about katin is it's so so colored by what happened next mm. that that colors your depiction of what these people are experiencing but you have to remember that when they were in the these were not death camps this was not like arriving in auschwitz you know mm. it wasn't quite cold it's either no no somewhere yes, in between right. you know mm. they were prisoners mm. of war it was you know it was unpleasant and uncomfortable but they were not beaten and they had no expectation no. of dying so no you know, you you're not going to think about it in 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 these incredibly emotive terms. And I think if you layer on too much emotion, it, mm. other people can't digest it, and mm. and so you have to hold back to allow things to unfold. And and that's part. You know, I, when I first wrote that novel, I think I the the agent that I was with at the time sent it to a publisher and said it's about the cat in massacre. And I met him afterwards and he said, but it's not about the cat in Moscow. It's about this guy Kozlowski and what happens to him and his uh, perspective. And, and that's actually very true that the, 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 the actual massacre, it's not really a spoiler to say this, is actually not part of it. It's about someone who survives. And so he never mm. sees it. You know, the people who survived didn't know that they'd survived for a very long time. And they mm. didn't... Um, um sorry my 
<laughs> my windows just spontaneously opened. Um, uh, and, and so I think that's a really important thing to remember and to bear in mind because otherwise you end up with something with kind of gloomy music, mood music the yeah. whole way through, yes. and then you just want to yeah. give up. And people were constantly asking me when I was writing this, saying, "Oh God, you know, don't you get depressed writing about? This? Sounds really gloomy what you're writing about." And I would say no, not at all, because yeah. I was to totally abs absorbed in writing about their lives. And, and, and in a way, writing the novel to me was an act of resurrection. It was about yeah. these men's lives. And actually that's what the whole yeah. book is about. It's an act of resurrection for Tomash and all the others to allow them to be full human beings in all their glory. And, and that in a way is the act of defiance towards the, the killing is look, these uh -huh. people are real. You know, these people are real, they existed, they're alive in this book. Yes. Whereas when I wrote Surviving Katyn, the, the non-fiction book, I have to say I found that just not just the weight of the research and doing most of it in Polish, which was hard work as well for me, yeah. but just actually the subject matter did really get to me in, a, in sure. a way that it never did when I was writing the novel. I'm sure. Uh, oh, that's that is that's very interesting yes yes so that takes me to the next piece which is which has this beautifully poignant balance between what you're saying the kind of hope and the and the desperate sadness of it where he, um, again uh i'm not going to be able to do the name as names as such but he meets this um uh Vasilevna, Dr. Vasilevna, what's all this laughter, Dr. Vasilevna? Get down to work instead of wasting time with these poles. Yes, Dr. Yegorov. But there, have, but there has been this moment just prior to that. He unbuttons his shirt, shamefully conscious of his filthy body. The red marks of the lice have bitten him. They have not allowed us to bathe. She places the stethoscope on his chest, the cold metal sending a shiver across his skin. Her hair smells of shampoo and a clean, fresh scent that makes him long to stand under a hot shower until the memory of this camp, with all its dirt and filth, has been washed away. So, the, and that's one of our, our many, many moments you write about, like with like the talks and the laughter and the and the the lectures that they give one another, which I know you know I've read about also in other places. But one doesn't read in the research, of course, in the apart from the diaries, which do, as I mentioned have these you know what was taken from them the buttons and uh, their, their um very personal belongings that were taken from them as they were taken up into the forest or or as you write about in Kharkov um but that piece about I I'm assuming is that that's that's solely from your imagination this moment where that where this woman says because uh, the woman she who's was, um, she's a real character so is she She's a real character and and I think so I often I built a character based on a you know a comment that someone made about her or something a line somewhere and and there was a mention of her being more sympathetic um than the other doctor who was horrible um and and the fact that possibly i think she had a grandfather or something who had been polish or something those so she was kind she was the only one who was quite kind and now I'm conscious of time because I didn't say I, would, I said I wouldn't take more than forty minutes from me, and yeah. I really have taken <laughs> a that. Can you give me a few more minutes? Of course. Okay. Well, let's 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 go, let's go, uh, let's go to the yes, well, there's this awful, awful bit where, but and yet, uh, I think we'll have to. I think we'll have to go there to my final three. Uh, 
um, moments of, of 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 tears and and here. Well, Kharkov, really, we better we better go there. We better go there. But it's not just about Kharkov. It's about it's about him and his. Uh, yeah. Oh my goodness me, my goodness me. This piece about him. It's never uh, well. I'm inferring that Kozhovsky's um, age brings with it, a, 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 a kind of age-related illnesses. But then, but nevertheless, but you write about it in a way that is profoundly beautiful, if I may say. Um, Kozhovsky stands in a clearing in the forest. It is late spring. I'm not going to be able to do it. The sound of birdsong echoes among the trees. Above him, a brilliant blue sky. He's waiting for something or someone. He's not precisely sure what or whom, but he's content to stand in this pleasant spot, his eyes taking in the tiny flowers which carpet the forest floor, his face feeling the gentle warmth of the sun, his bare feet touching the black soil under the fresh spring grass. And oh, I'll better do the final paragraph of this bit. There is just one thing left to do. Now that he has the proof he's always said he needed, the order given the exact description of what occurred he must picture it this is i'm taking us back to my very first question about the significance of it he cannot remember it because it, he was not there but he went on and they did not and this is the piece that hammer hammer blowed me in order to reach the end he must imagine it he must imagine it i mean that's the that's what you're doing. It seems to me is that you're you're without battering the readers over the head or anything. You're saying, I, you know, what I'm inferring. We must remember this. But he's in a place. What's going on here then? He's in a place. That, what for you? It doesn't. I suppose it in a sense it doesn't matter what's going on for you, does it? What, I think um, it's. It, I think it's really that you know he's a man who spent his whole adult life repressing this the this yes. this whole this absence this silence that's been in his memory you know that i think that the thing that really fascinated me was to think what is the effect on a man to survive something that you don't know what you've survived you know yes. he goes through his whole life he doesn't know what it is no because yes. katin that's the people from kozhelsk he doesn't know what happened to the men from Starodelsk. He can infer that it's likely to be something very similar, but he doesn't know for sure. And it's and 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 his his inability to come to terms with with what has happened to Tomash and his friends uh, is what makes his life what it is, his adult life, his life in exile. And as he approaches death, he has to finally accept the fact that Thomas is dead and he has to mm. because he now knows how it happened because he's read about it he feels he has to visualize it in order to bring both of their stories to a close mm. and that's our job isn't it when people say to me well why are you writing this play about it why why that 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 paragraph for me is that's an answer to it to me why are we remembering it not simply because we want to make ourselves sad but because we want to stand sometimes memory this is what i'm inferring from it and what i got from it sometimes memory takes us to a clearing in the forest where it's late spring and the sound of birdsong echoes among the trees you know and we can feel a novel or history can take us to a place where our feet 
can touch the forest floor and our face can feel the gentle warmth of the sun. Not just see the... Because you're not writing about the beauty of any kind of execution experience. You're writing about, it seems to me, in a sense, it doesn't matter whether it matters, it matters to you, whether it means this to you, the, the significance and beauty of memory. It need not... It is important to go to these places in memory because sometimes it can bring you a sort of peace. Is that... That's what I. That's what I read anyway. This forest is not. Well, that, a forest that's, that's the thing about fiction, isn't it? You know, the reader is free to infer what they like. So it's not. It's no, slightly different quite. from how how I approached it, but that's your experience yes, of it, which is great. Feels to me. Yes, yes, yes. And then the very, very last one. I won't do the very last page. Obviously, that would be spoiling it. But readers, when you get to the last page you will be blown away and you have to have lots of people <laughs> to phone and to talk to. But it is, it, but it isn't, you're not left with a kind of, you're not left with a kind of tragic gloom, but you are left with a, a great sadness. But I've got a question for you Impermanence is the beauty. Go ahead, get yeah. I've got a question for you. Do you think it has any similar kind of resonance if you're not connected to Poland? I don't know because I am. And I do, but I, I do from the sense of, I mean, when you, my grandfather, as I think I wrote to you, I just, I only just found out uh, uh, last year, in fact, because we had my, my newly found cousin, who I also discovered only last year, found a document that, oh, so she's always had it, but she said, do you want to see it? Where uh, my great grandfather wrote to the leader prison governor to say, what have you done with my son? Because he disappeared in 1940. And I wondered whether he'd gone, he'd been murdered as, uh, actually in the forest, but he's not on any of the memorials. Um, and the prison governor in Leda writes back to my great grandfather to say, well, he isn't in Leda, but he was, he was in prison there in 1939, uh, 1940, but he's gone to Minsk. Right. And thereafter, so if you could, because obviously the Belarusian side of it is is the one side where they haven't really been able to get a list of names yeah. yet because Lukashenko is still there and so the archives are not accessible. But it's possible that they might eventually be able to turn up his name. Yes, I mean I discovered when I was writing this that my great uncle was killed at Katyn, which oh, I, didn't, I didn't actually know I had a great you know it, it wasn't a kind of something I knew about at all. That uh, it was a strange, I suppose it just goes to show how many people of Polish origin, particularly in ex, I suppose, of the diaspora, would be connected in some way, given that most of them ended up in exile. I don't know. The, the details of this, of this, of these moments, uh, this is in uh, Kharkov. And there is this, you refer to this character who I've read about also, uh, this fellow who um, he couldn't live with the guilt is that it or he and he described what took place in Kharkov and that's how we know what's his name again I forget yes. his name um I can't remember his name fully yes 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 but he um, he can't there's so much this Jane I was just looking at this I wasn't the page I was referring to so let me go to this one here again but I want to pay a tribute to your writing as much as anything else because it took me right in there when I'm imagining what might have happened which is why I can't answer your question adequately what might have happened to my grandfather? <clears throat> it might have been like these moments where they're put into the, they're in the cell, and then one by one, and you have, I think it's Tomasz, one of them, mm. almost pushes his way 
through his fellow prisoners to the door mm. uh, to say, uh, yes, okay, here, here I am, yep, it's me, it's me, and you can imagine this mm. with, without any sense of what's going to happen. One of the guards pushes open the door while the other marches uh, Olger out to the courtyard towards another building. And this is, the, I want, this is the things I want to come to. The courtyard is dark, save for the light emerging from the door on the other side where a senior NKVD officer waits. The air smells damp and cool. A covered civilian truck is parked by the door and the tarpaulin at the back pulled down. And here he is, this man who will never be known, but he was there, a man with a cleaning bucket and a mop that leans idly against the wall, smoking a cigarette. He watches Olger with indifference as the Polish officer is led inside. And then later on, he does his mopping to make sure there is no blood left. And But there's that, that character who we never... We'll ne he's got, there's a whole, please write the novel of this character <laughs> who uh, stands by his truck just mopping and mopping and mopping and then leaning. And I was reading, reading him and then thinking, God, I bet he was next. I bet he was next. They wouldn't have let him live, would they? This fellow who was mopping up and... and, and uh... Yeah, don't know about that. Astonishing. 40 minutes later, Siegmund is called. He's taken along the same corridor as I'll get and out into the same courtyard. And you just keep thinking, you know, Rowski uh, has been practicing his habitual technique of focusing his mind on memories of his home, his wife, his garden. He tries to remember the titles of all the books that used to line the shelves in his study. It's those sorts of details. We're reaching the end now, Jane. So I promise you that you, because of the... I may humbly say the quality of your writing, those sorts of vivid details, because it's in the present tense, it's even more vivid. And we're, we're in this character, we're in Raski's eyes as he tries to remember the titles of all the books that used to line the shelves in his study. He goes through all the names of all the professors who taught him at university and all the students he's taught in turn. He remembers the day when he first met his wife and the day his daughter was born. Oh my God. Oh God, see, that's why when people, I don't know, this is, that's my answer anyways, and then I'll pass on to you for final <laughs> thoughts about how we've got to keep this, keep this alive, keep the, not just face, asking people to face the horror, is it? It's, it's asking people to face the beauty of the lives that were lived and that are being lived now. Um, this character who remembers in detail that the, all these things about his life, and the life is so precious and the history is i don't know what 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 do you think as we wrap up what message would you want to share with my readers about my listeners about how what's the best thing we can do that's it what's the best thing we can do to to honor the characters some real some not that you've that you've written about in this beautiful novel um I think it's uh, a tricky one. I think, I, I mean, I always hesitate to give anyone a prescription for anything, really. Um, but I think uh, it's just important to try to allow, uh, to allow these people to be who they were, to, to allow them mm. to be full characters with faults and desires and, you know, to allow their humanity to, to, to fully express itself rather than putting them on a pedestal and saying, because you were murdered, mm. you're a saint. 
but to mm. to to remember them as you know as as human beings with all that that implies mm. and i think that's the most honest and and c compassionate thing that one can do and i think i would also urge anyone to read joseph chapsky's memoirs yes, uh, yes. or indeed the far less well known and very sadly out of print bronisław winarski's account and actually those two men were the, the kind of greatest inspiration to me and i think I think I think one of the one of the problems when you approach a, a, a massive historic event like this as somebody who comes from a different generation is that for me the most powerful accounts and it's the same with the Holocaust as well that when I I, remember, I used to read a lot around it and the, the most powerful accounts come from very close to it you know first hand experience you you can't you know get more potent than that and I and I felt that. I, I spent a long time struggling with how to write about it when you can't write in the first person, you know, mm. when you weren't there. So how do you how do you bear witness to something which you're not part of and without making it kind of over emotional and mawkish, but to, to bring it to life? Um, and, and Kozlowski became the kind of key to the central character, but also in the nonfiction book in Surviving Katyn, you know, it was just trying, trying to, trying to tell the whole story as it unfolded in real time, rather than mm. what most nonfiction books about Katyn do, is they take you through the camps, and then in April, May, nineteen forty, you follow the victims, and the rest of it's a little bit of a side affair. Um, so it's all about the death, uh, and and I've always been fascinated by the survivors, and there are, when you when you pursue the if yes. you pursue surviving Katyn, you'll find this you know large chunks of the experience of the survivors, uh, which is completely just fascinating on its own terms. Yes, you yes. know being marooned yes. in the middle of the Soviet Union for eighteen yes. months, being quite well treated, talking about Proust on a summer's day in the middle of the Soviet Union. Um, it's so bizarre. And, and, and there's a whole episode as well, which I also found fascinating politically about the, the pro-communist group who get taken to this villa that's dubbed the Villa of Bliss. And at this kind of, sort of bitter, toxic sort of paradise that goes horribly wrong as they all fight with each other. That, that I know that's been dramatized in Poland <laughs> more than once, but. There are so many different aspects to this story, and I think it's important when we remember it that we remember all of the different aspects. It's such a complex story, and don't reduce things mm -hmm. to sort of ciphers. But I, I don't have a message for people because I, I don't think it's you know the books are what they are, and I hope people yes, enjoy. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yes. Well, I I completely enjoyed your your book. Um, completely enjoyed your Kozlowski. Uh, I enjoy, I loved meeting him. I'll never miss him because he'll always be there in my memory, and I uh, feel like he is a relative because I because you because that's what you do, isn't it? With characters who become very close to you, you feel very close to. They become part of you, and then no longer <clears throat> the border between fact and fiction is just blurred. I, I mean, I can't believe he's not real, but he is real, isn't he? If you imagine he him, is. he's real. He's real as a you that you come across, and as a doctor, as a healer um you know there's a significance to that too and as i reach my age it, you know your book is also if I, that's what i wanted to i'll finish with this 
that I want that 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 even if you don't know much, if you're not Polish connected, you are a human being, and you're a human being who will one day get up with any luck. Um, and that's that that's what Kozłowski does for me. Is it, it's a journey through a life lived, a particular yeah, past, life lived. Yeah. yes, and into and into a uh, not a reconciliation, but a facing of the past and not being crushed by it but almost liberated by it this forest thing you know and then the very very last pages so jane thank you so much for your time today and thank you so much for your writing my pleasure and, uh, thank you so much for your enthusiasm i really appreciate it wow can i ask you more about your um your show yeah. now that yes we're, should we are we oh, still recording or we're still um, and so yes, tell me about your show. Oh well, now this is also a work of complete fiction uh, it, because because I started off because I I always knew I was Polish and then and then are you uh, are you wholly Polish? Were both your parents? No, Polish? no, no. My my mother was Polish and uh, my father was Irish. Um, oh, okay. And, uh, my mother, mother Isa uh, Masevich, um, my mother. Uh, as I say, she her, she was she lived near Vilno. She lived in uh, Bianyakoni, which is now in Belarus, um, and she was deported to, with her mother uh, to Kazakhstan. I think I know where. Then she was deported. To, then they went with, with the children, she, and her mother went as a teacher to Balakadi and, and, and Balavadi, and then Uganda, and then here. And they came here in 1948, and all, all of these details about her life came to me in the past two years because I was searching for my I wondered whether I, I could after my parents died find out anything about my birth family and the journey still goes on and then I discovered in her adoption papers when she put me up for adoption it's as a little line saying uh, details of your father and she puts killed in the war and that's all she puts about Vitov Masevich. That's what they used to have to say. Yes. Yeah. So that led me to think. So you were adopted by a British family. Yes. Yes. So you yes. didn't. You didn't know you were half Polish. Um, you know, adoption being what it was in those days, it was never talked about. I think mum and dad used to say, "Oh, yeah, I think your mother was Polish," and then nothing else was said. The sadness of that is that she died in 1991 when I was 31, and I could could have. But there it is. There's shoulds and coulds. It's like it's like you know your book about. There's no point trying to recreate the past. You have to you have to, as far as you can, explore it and 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 enjoy it and be intrigued by it and learn from it. So I thought when all these information started to come to me about um, her and about her father, I traced. I searched for grandfather Vitot. That was the thing. I thought, I must find you, Vitot. There must be more to you than this one line killed in the war. So I made it a kind of mission to do all I could to search for anything about him. And I found, oh boy, the details, but I found a shed load of stuff, including now, where I think he actually met his end. Um, so almost a psychodrama, really. What the... I thought, well, what do I do with all this information? What do I do with it? And I've connected with a few Polish groups through Facebook and, and one thing and another, and polls in this town here, 
and I've met so many Polish people in Stratford where I live and uh, and and um they bit the and their story is quite amazing but the best way for me to cope with it was to think I've got to write it I've got to write this I've got to write I've got to meet the characters that I've been related to so the play is about um an English sorry a Polish uh, refugee who searches for his brother he thinks his brother was killed at Katyn, Katyn, but he doesn't know. And then, to cut a long story short, he and his wife meet two Russians in 1990 who happen to be over here, to a theatre director and um, his wife, an actor. And the play is about what would happen if these two Russians and these two Poles met and the Russian character, who I've invented, obviously, uh, um, is uh, was directed in 1940 to be a fireman on the train that took the prisoners into the Katyn forest. So he didn't actually kill anybody, but he was on the train, but he was forced to be on it and saw the prisoners get taken off and saw them put into the buses and driven off into the forest. And maybe he saw my central character's brother without knowing it, of course. And he's kept that a secret all his life. And then in the, in the, in the play, he reveals this secret to his wife who didn't know. And he tells Stefan, yeah, I was on the train and maybe your brother was on it. So what do we do now? What do we do now? And that's what I was exploring, really, is what, how do, what if, how do ordinary people uh, both, both face stories that come to them as, the, as, 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 as they come to me, but then how do, we move, how do we live on? And can we reconcile with people who were involved in it? And because um, in the end, everything is solved through talk and through meeting and through ordinary things through glasnost through sitting down and talking with each other and is it possible so at the very end of the play what i've tried to do is to leave it because there's no easy solutions you can't write a kind of disney story about any of this and so you open next week yeah we open next week indeed we do tickets available sorry. in all parts of the I'm house i'm really sorry yes. i can't i'm going to be in france from monday i'm working on a new book and i'm i'm just back oh, a week really so i'm back again back in france again next week so so what's your new book about oh more cheerful stuff <laughs> 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 i had this joke with my husband that after having written about Katyn, i was going to write an encyclopedia of fluffy kittens <laughs> <laughs> and that was Sadly, I've failed. My, my fluffy kitten interaction is confined to Instagram. Um, it's, it's provisionally called Hotel Exile. It's about a, three groups of people who are all connected to a single building in Paris mm. called Hotel Lutetia. This is a non-fiction work, but it's kind of literary non-fiction. Um, and this Hotel Lutetia is the only luxury hotel on the left bank of Paris. And um, in between 1933 and 1945, these three groups of people who are all sort of connected to each other indirectly. So the, the first group is our German anti-Nazis who ended up in exile in Paris, who used to meet at the hotel. 
um, to try and form a sort of popular front government. The second uh, group is the Abwehr, who were they rec the Nazis mm. requisitioned the, the hotel during the war, and it was the headquarters of the Abwehr, which is the military intelligence. And then just after the war, the hotel was used as a kind of reception center for deportees returning from concentration camps. So this kind of luxury hotel became this sort of full of all these people come, you know, come back from Auschwitz and stuff. So, so it's kind of a story about exile, really different kinds of exile mm -hmm. centers mm -hmm. on three groups of three different groups of people. And you follow their stories in three different parts. Wow. Um, so well, yeah, uh, there's a shed load of research to do for that. <laughs> oh, I look forward to, look forward to it. Look forward yeah. to it. And I can't wait to uh, continue reading this. Finish with one yeah, last, let me know what one you think. last uh, blast of the past. Here we go. Yeah, so yeah. I'm let me happy. know what you think. Yeah. Thank you yeah. for reading both. I appreciate it very much. Thank you for writing them. Jane, thank you for your time. Deeply appreciate it. Good luck in all you do. Thank you. And, uh, Good luck with your show. And, uh, Sorry, I can't read it. Yeah. Yeah. Dziękuję bardzo. Nie ma za co. Proszę bardzo.